So last week we, uh, we talked about the radical nature, the radical essence of Jesus. We learned and we discussed how our perception of Jesus is often in conflict with the actual Jesus of history and the actual Jesus of Scripture. We talked about the fact that we very often have domesticated, we very often have tamed the real Jesus, that Jesus Christ was not just some nice guy who taught us how to play nice with other people, how to have good manners, how to be good citizens, but he came with a radical message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, that is the primary teaching of Jesus that you find in the gospel, is the gospel of the kingdom of God. That gospel presents us with a counterintuitive lifestyle, a counterintuitive way of thinking, a counterintuitive way of existing and being that rejects all societal norms, all cultural norms, and it calls us to lifestyles that subvert all worldly ideologies, all worldly pursuits, all worldly endeavors, all enticements, and it embraces instead a complete allegiance. If y'all don't know, learned nothing in the last six weeks or so, Y'all have learned that word allegiance, but a complete allegiance to Jesus above all else. In the words of Christ himself, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to fully accept my gospel, whoever wants to fully accept my good news, must deny themselves. They must take up their cross and they must follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's the calling of the church. And when I say that term, the church, I mean collectively every individual, past, present, and future, who claims, who claims Christ as Lord. So just, just as Jesus came as a radical prophet who frustrated and irritated the religious and the political systems of his day, the guy who ate with sinners, the guy who came to preach good news to the poor and the marginalized, and the guy who lived a life of unconditional love and unconditional advocacy for others, so too are we called to those radical lifestyles. Does this sound like the Jesus that you know? Don't answer out loud. Think about it. Does this sound like the Jesus that you know? Does this sound like the Jesus that you have been taught? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but I maybe it doesn't, but I think we can all agree on one thing, that there is a great separation between the Jesus of the Gospels and the Jesus of our current church cultures. I see some of you nodding your heads in affirmation, so thank you. Let me repeat that. I think that most of us can agree that there is a great separation from the Jesus of the Gospels and the Jesus of our current church cultures. So we've got to ask ourselves, what happened? What happened? How did we go from following this radical Jesus to accepting Christianity simply as a pathway for getting out of hell and basically just being nice people? Church, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I want to give you a couple that seem to keep repeating themselves throughout history over and over and over and over again. First, I'm going to give you a history lesson. For those of you who, never, who, who have not heard this, I know some of you have. Uh, but we can, we, we can never really hear this story enough because it emphasizes so much where we went wrong and how we still continue to go wrong in so many areas. But for the first 300 years of its existence, Christianity was illegal throughout the Roman Empire. That's the whole area where Jesus lived. That's the whole area where Christianity started and far, far beyond that. 
Christianity for the first 300 years was illegal throughout the entire Roman Empire. <laughs> Y'all know that we say the Apostles' Creed pretty much every morning. Some of us say about half of it. But y'all know that we say the Apostles' Creed pretty much every Sunday morning, right? The first creed of the church, one of the first creeds of the church was simply this, three little words, Jesus is Lord. Y'all will hear me use that phrase a lot because I, I just love the simplicity of it. But that was a major creed, you know, just as we, as we recite the Apostles' Creed as, as part of our belief system, the first major creed of the church was three words, Jesus is Lord. And that's what these early, these early churches, these early Christians went around proclaiming throughout the Roman Empire. And you say, well, you know, Jesus is Lord. That seems pretty, pretty innocent and pretty harmless to us who have 21st century American ears. But for the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord, and Caesar carried absolute power and absolute authority. So there's a problem here. During this time, during this first 300 years or so in the Roman Empire, those guys who were going around proclaiming Jesus as Lord literally tens of thousands of Christians who proclaimed that were murdered in government-supported executions. They were oftentimes left hanging alongside public roadways just so people would get the message, just so people would witness the penalty for anybody who proclaimed anybody except Caesar as Lord. Those Christian martyrs accepted the clear and present dangers of following Jesus. They refused to bow down to the religious and the political systems of the day and that denied Jesus' authority and lordship. So that's what our church looked like for the first 300 years or so in that first Christian environment, the first Christian culture. The church was getting off its feet. That's the culture that they lived into. Fast forward a few hundred years to the year 313, things started changing a little bit, and it started changing under the leadership of a guy named Emperor Constantine. I'm sure a number of y'all have heard that name before as well. So they legalized, Constant, under Constantine, Christianity was legalized in the Roman Empire, and you think that would be a good thing, and to some degree it was. It greatly diminished persecution. However, there was a bigger problem that presented itself, and that was the marriage of these two systems, the marriage of the church, the marriage of Christianity, and the marriage of empire. In this particular case, it, it, it mar marrying marriage to the Roman Empire. So what happened? Ironically, that marriage, I would say that unholy marriage of these two belief systems dealt a devastating blow to the vibrancy, the vitality, and the radical nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, United I mentioned this particular author to you guys last week, but I, another UMC pastor and, and, and an author, uh, a guy by the name of Mike Slaughter, uh, wrote, wrote these words considering this, and I think that he, uh, that he summed it up very well. But he wrote this. He said, he said, in this period, in this time period, Jesus is, y'all listen to this. This is so good. This is good stuff. Jesus' followers started to become comfortable, and they started to become complacent. Christians enjoyed being part of the status quo instead of the rebellious fringe. In essence, Constantine made the church an instrument of the state, and in the 4th century, the church started to lose its radical nature and its renegade gospel. The gospel became civilized, and the rebel Jesus became domesticated. Church, i got to ask you this morning, does that sound familiar to you at all? Yeah, it does. Think about that. And I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, you all know how I feel about preaching partisan politics from the pulpit. I ain't down with it. But I want you all to think about that next time you see some preacher. 
Next time you see some famous Christian leader being all cozed up next to a politician telling you guys who to vote for and how to vote. Something wrong there. Something bad happens. I'm not saying you shouldn't be involved socially. You should. But something bad happens when we start crossing those lines and start mixing together these two ideologies, these two different ideologies. Are we too comfortable in our society just as these early folks were in the year 313? Why does Christianity seem to thrive more in cultures and societies where Christianity is not widely accepted? Where Christians actually do face real persecution. You want to know where Christianity thrives the most? We all know that it's not the United States any longer. We all know that it's not in the European nations any longer. Christianity thrives the most in Asia and in Africa. Places where Christianity is not the primary religion. Places where Christians get arrested and worse for practicing their religion. That's where God is showing his face right now and has been for several decades. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I think there's a lot of reasons, but it's something for you guys to think about. Here's the thing. You cannot marry the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God, with any other worldview or system and expect it to look anything like Christianity. Authentic Christianity. Christianity as it was intended. Our commitment and our allegiance to Jesus demands that we not prostitute our allegiance to Jesus, to any other priority system. It demands that our lifestyles are in, are in alignment with the kingdom of God worldview, with a Jesus-centered worldview. Now, you might be asking what a worldview is. What do, you mean by, what do you mean by this term, worldview? A worldview is basically this. A worldview is pretty much defined as any set or a set of fundamental beliefs that we carry with us that determine our life values, that determine our decisions, that determine our actions. Let me name a couple of them that you guys are sure, sure to recognize. Here's, here's a few common worldviews that you're definitely going to pick up on that, and that you're exposed to every day. Democrat, Republican, conservatism, liberalism, capitalism, socialism. I think you got to get the idea. Those are all specific worldviews. What forms your worldview, church? Is it these things? Is it liberalism? Is it conservatism? Is it something that we see on the news, something we read about? What forms your worldview? What forms your worldview more? Is it these ideologies or is it a Jesus-centered ideology? Because let me repeat myself. When you mesh the two, when you marry the two with anything, when you marry a gospel-centered ideology, a Christ-centered ideology with any other secular ideology, it ceases to become authentic Christianity. And that's where we're messing up right now, majorly. I didn't even plan on preaching on this, on this, in this detail. We want to embrace secular ideologies above a Jesus-centered ideology. We want to try to justify and, and, and blend these two together, and it cannot be done. It plagued the early church when Christianity was legalized, and it continues to plague our church today. It continues to plague our church today. When we do that, folks, when we try to reconcile a combination of these different systems, we lose our witness and we lose our authority to Jesus. I could give you all kinds of examples of that that I've witnessed, that all of us have witnessed. Maybe we never took notice of it before, but all of us have witnessed examples of these. Think of, 
think of crowds, think of, think, 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 of, think of situations pertaining to violence where people are holding up crosses and holding up Jesus signs while at the same time participating in violence. We've all seen examples like that. That's what happens when you marry two different ideologies and try to reconcile and justify them just like these folks did. It is one of the most common and it is one of the most detrimental heresies in the history of the church and we still haven't learned our lesson. Secondly though, another heresy and another enemy of this revolutionary lifestyle that Christ prescribes to us is attempting to privatize our faith. Attempting to privatize our faith. And this is something y'all know we've talked about before. In other words, we make Christianity all about us. More specifically, we make Christianity all about me. Jesus came, Jesus died, and he rose from the grave to get me into heaven. And it pretty much just kind of ends there. There's no commitment to being a part of Jesus' teachings to be participants in bringing the vision of the kingdom of God to earth as we pray on earth as it is in heaven. There's no taking seriously the fact that Jesus says his kingdom gospel is about proclaiming good news to the poor. It's about binding up the brokenhearted. It's about proclaiming freedom for the captives, and it's about releasing the imprisoned from the darkness of the world. That's scripture from the gospels, and that's scripture from the book of Isaiah. Again, here's another quote from Mike Slaughter. He says, if we focus only on the social aspect of our religion, of our practice, of our ministry and our mission to others, we, if we focus only on the social, we lack the power of the new birth and we lack the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit that are critical for bringing about true and lasting change. However, if we make it privatized, if we make it a only personal religion, the church fails its public commitment and its public responsibility, its social responsibility to rebuild, to restore, and to renew. Church, practicing this revolutionary lifestyle means submitting ourselves 100% to the authority of the teachings of Jesus. Check out these words from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. It's two little verses, Matthew 7, 24 and 25. Matthew 7, 24 and 25. This is actually a parable that Jesus is telling towards. He, he's actually, this is, I'll give you a little background. This is, this is contained within what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know, is basically just, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's Jesus' uh, most popular sermon, most, most well-known sermon. Uh, but it's basically just a list. It, 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 Jesus telling us his, his, his worldview. Really, and, and uh, he's confronting our selfishness. He confronts our self-centeredness. He, he preaches to us an upside-down, counterintuitive way of being, counterintuitive way of thinking, and operating throughout the world in our, in our daily lives. And towards the, towards the end of it, he tells this little parable here. After giving all these instructions, if ever, therefore, if um, everyone who hears these words of mine and does what thinks about them considers them, looks over them, considers them optional. Anybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That's the word of God for the people of God. This is life-changing stuff, folks. He doesn't, again, and I, and I want you to see those words, puts it into practice. Puts them into practice. Puts them into practice. It's not about a belief system. It's about a putting into practice system. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misinterpret anything. Go out here and say, G, say Jerry said, that we, if our beliefs don't matter. Our beliefs do matter. But it's also a practice. Jesus gives us very, very clear instruction. And yet we want to treat these things as being optional. Put them into practice. That is the lifestyle we are prescribed. Let me give you some statistics. In the United States and Canada, there is somewhere in the area of about 200 different Christian denominations. There's also somewhere in the area of about 35,000 different independent and non-denominational type churches. Every single one of these churches profess Jesus as Lord. But how many of them are preaching and practicing commitment to Jesus as their worldview and as their lifestyle? I've been to a lot of churches, folks. I've been to a lot of denominations. I've been to a lot of non-denominational churches. I don't hear these messages. Maybe y'all have. If, if, if y'all have, that's great. Wonderful. Y'all have been under some wonderful leadership, some great, some, great, some great preaching and teaching. I haven't heard a lot of this. Mostly I hear it's about, it's about getting out of hell, to be honest with you. That, that's been the message I've heard my entire life for the most part. I didn't hear this message about putting Christ's words into practice. 35,000 non-denominational independent churches, 200 different denominations, all of whom proclaim in theory that Jesus is Lord. How many of them are practicing that commitment to Christ's teachings as their lifestyle? And having a Jesus-centered world view. This is a problem, church. This is a major problem. Our works do not save us. That is, a, that is the primary foundational belief of all Protestant theology. Our works do not save us. Christ has already saved us through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. However, the fruit of our faith is obedience to what Jesus taught us fruit of our faith is obedience to what Jesus called us to be and to do. Believing is part of the gospel, but it is not the whole of the gospel. It is not the entirety of the gospel. Y'all know this. Even the demons in scripture proclaim and recognize that Jesus is Lord. Jesus' mandate was not just to believe. It was to follow. His lifestyle becomes our lifestyle. His worldview becomes our worldview. But here's what we have a tendency to do, church. Here's what we have a tendency to do. Again, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that there are two paths that we can choose. You find it in Matthew 7, 13, and 14. And those verses read this. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. We seem to think that there is a third way to this a lot of times. 
We seem to have created a third way. We think that that narrow way belongs to people like pastors only, Christian leadership only, those involved in religious uh, institutions only, monks, nuns, those types of things. And we tend to think that that other path that Jesus is talking about is strictly for the lost. But we want a third way. We want a middle path that's kind of somewhere in between those. It's for the rest of us. The problem is that's not what Jesus said. He calls all to follow him. There is no third way. There's no third gate. There is no third road. Church, we need to reclaim the meaning and the lifestyle of Christianity. We need to become those radical, those risk-taking community that once again reflects the directives, the commandments of its renegade leader and that passes on that movement to the next generation. When she was asked one time what her advice would be to a young preacher, Mother Teresa said this. She said, preach Jesus. Preach the true Jesus. Preach the resurrected Jesus and not a Jesus of people's imagination." Church, I'm going to call you to this today. I'm going to call myself to this, and I'm going to call you guys to this. I'm going to call you to make that commitment today, not tomorrow, not next week, not a couple of years from now. I'm going to call you guys to make that commitment today. Y'all know I don't do talk like this very often, but I feel like this is on my heart, and I feel like God gave me this message this morning, and I feel like he's leading me to do it, and, I, and, I, and the best I can do is be faithful, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I am calling you, because I believe God is calling us to make this radical commitment today to stop thinking about it, to stop talking about it, to stop trying to figure it all out, but to actually commit to it, to actually commit to it, to realigning our lifestyles with the renegade gospel of the real Jesus, learning to be formed into his image instead of trying to make him into our image. I want to do this um, with you guys. I, 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 if this has touched you in some way, if, all, if, if today's sermon or if, if the combination of these sermons that we've covered the last four, five, six weeks, if they have touched you in some way, and if you've pulled this, you have felt this pull of God in your heart, this pull that's saying, you know what, I kind of do reflect the world more than, more than I do Jesus. Or you know what, I do tend to embrace secular ideologies a little bit more than I do a Jesus-centered worldview. If you've been pulling in that direction, you felt that tug of God, I want to ask you to say this prayer with me. And y'all ain't got to say it out loud, y'all can say it in your mind. But if you're ready to make that commitment, I want you to pray this prayer with me, okay? Nobody's going to be looking around, nobody has to say this out loud, they don't have to do it verbally. Although I think that would be really cool if you did. But I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to make that commitment this morning. Y'all bow y'all's heads. And if you feel like you're being pulled in this direction, I would just ask you to submit these words to God. Heavenly Father, in the midst of all my doubt, all my skepticism and uncertainty, I make the commitment today 
not only to confess you with my lips as Lord Jesus, but to go where you are going and to do what you are doing. I will leave no route for retreat or escape. I will be called by your name and I will be numbered among your people. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord, that I pray these words. Amen.